Our scripture reading this evening comes from Psalm 119, verses 41 to 48. You can find this on page 480 of the Black Pew Bible. Tonight's lesson is brought to you by the letter Vav, <laughs> which is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the letter Vav, W-A-W. You might think wall, but uh, Vav, they, like, like German, they pronounce the, v, the W as a V, double V, they say. So let's read together. I'm going to read verses 41 to 48. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, and your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. And I will keep your law continually, forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame. For I, def I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. The word of the Lord. Well, let's look again at those uh, eight verses that we read a moment ago, and uh, I think most everybody will relate to this. Uh, have you ever noticed how when people get a new relationship, they want to tell people about it? Uh, and this is especially true the younger you are. Remember middle school and high school? When you got the new boyfriend or girlfriend, what did you do? You wrote their name on your hand. You wrote it all over the front of your notebook with hearts, especially if you were a girl. And you wanted to be seen, you know, hand in hand, walking down the middle of the hallway. You didn't want anybody to be confused about your relationship status. Uh, today it might take different form. It may be changing your status on Instagram or on whatever kids are on, TikTok. I don't know all that stuff. I try to stay off of it. But uh, I'm sure you can change your relationship status to let the world know. Anybody who wants to know, I am in a relationship and I'm happy about it. I thought about that this week, especially in relationship to these verses, because David over and over again says, God, I love your word, and I don't just want it in my heart, I want it in my mouth. I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it all the time. I even want to talk about it when I'm in front of kings. In dangerous situations, I want to talk about it. I don't care who knows. I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. That was David. And yet, think about this. It's really interesting, isn't it? If you want to work up a good case of guilt in Christians, preach a sermon on evangelism. It's right up there with Sabbath keeping and prayer. This is some of my favorite topics, by the way. But I, I'm, I'm never intending to give guilt, but often guilt comes because these are some of the three things we're the worst at. Or the slowest to grasp. And yet, notice what it's saying. You tell, you talk about, you want to talk about the things you're most excited about. And I think I just want tonight to talk you through this by helping you see evangelism or sharing your faith or witnessing in a completely different way than you maybe have seen it before. I want you to see it less as a formulaic duty... And I want you to see it more as just how you are called to live your life as a Christian who is in love with God and his word. 
Y'all ready? There's, there's a role for everybody in this. You don't just have to be a preacher. So let's look. There's three things. First of all, we see an answer from God, which is going to help us see what we bear witness to or about. Then there's a wide place that David describes or helps us see how we bear witness. And then lastly, there's a growing delight, which answers the question of why we bear witness. So first of all, let's look at what we bear witness to. Look at verse 41 and 42 again in your Bible. David has a simple request of God. It's twofold. It's one request with two parts. He says, let your steadfast love come to me. That's the first part. Second part, let your salvation come to me according to your promise. Now this is another, y'all remember Hebrew poetry has parallels. I've told y'all that again and again in this series so far. Uh, We rhyme in our poetry. They didn't rhyme. But they did parallel lines, and and the parallels were not based on sound, they were based on meaning. So lines were coupled based on meaning. And so that means steadfast love and salvation are parallel in David's mind, that they go together. They're almost the same thing. Steadfast love, you may guess what that word is in Hebrew, it's one of our favorite ones to say. Chesed, yes, good job, chesed. You have to spit on your neighbor to say it. Chesed. It's this idea of committed love. Not just I like it, not just I prefer it, but I am committed like a covenant to that person and to that thing. It's marital. Uh, In the scriptures, God represents himself as a husband to his people who are his bride. And he says, I have given you, O bride of mine, my chesed, my forever love. It's never dying. In fact, it never had a beginning. This is speaking about God's love. It's eternal, which is a thought to blow our minds. I mean, how can God's love be eternal? Never started. But it can because of the nature of who God is. And so that expands our horizons to understand this is a kind of love that because it never began, it can also never end. It began before the world was made. And so nothing in this world can make it stop. That's good news. And you can see why David would put that word in parallel to salvation. To be loved by God like that is nothing less than to be saved. You say saved from what? Well, actually, fill in the blank. I mean, of course, mainly the Bible is concerned with the root of our problem, which is sin and all of its effects, death and hell and all the rest. But out of that flows almost every problem you can imagine in all of life. And the answer to every one of those problems ultimately is that God would give his hesed to us. Well, David has already experienced God's hesed. So why is he asking for it to come? Think about that. He's already, he's already got it. He's talked about that already in the whole poem. We've been looking at it. Why is he saying, God, let it come to me? Well, we all know this. I think we know the answer by instinct if we are believers. You can receive God's salvation and God's love at one point in your life, but you're still going to need reassurance and confirmation of it at different points throughout your life. Don't y'all know that? Um, That's what he means by, let it come to me. 
Save me according to your promise. Let the world see it. Let me see it and feel it. That yes, you have loved me and you still love me. Show me in a new way. Don't y'all want that in your life? That God would always be surprising you with a new coming of his steadfast love? With a new arrival of his salvation? I'm not saying you're getting resaved, but I'm saying you're experiencing it afresh. David prays for that. But I want you to look at the Bible. Look down. Why does he want this? 42. He's got an accuser. He's got a taunter in his life. Somebody who does not respect God or him. Putting bad things in his ear. Putting doubtful thoughts in his heart. What does he want? An answer. An answer. A new, fresh confirmation of the steadfast love of God and of his salvation provides God's people with an answer to any taunt, any doubt, any objection, any temptation that they might face. And that, in a nutshell, is what witnessing is. That, in a nutshell, is what sharing your faith or evangelism or whatever you want to call it, that's what it is. In 1 Peter chapter, five, or chapter 3, rather, Peter says, When people mistreat you, don't be afraid of them. Instead, treat Christ the Lord as holy in your heart. So that you will be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you why you have hope. That's 1 Peter 3.15. When all the world's coming against you, hope in God. Treat Christ as Lord. Think of Jesus as bigger than them and their objections. Hope and wait on his steadfast love and on his salvation to come afresh to you. And when it does, you'll have an answer from God. That's what evangelism is. It's not us bringing our answers to people. It's us bringing God's answer to people. And I think that takes quite a bit of the pressure off. One great story that illustrates this is that of the man born blind that Jesus heals in John chapter 9. He bore witness to Jesus Christ. But he was not a specially gifted evangelist. He was not a preacher. He didn't even fully know who Jesus was. Remember that story? The Pharisees were like, who did this to you? And why did he do it on the Sabbath day? And ah, you know, they're attacking him. They're attacking his parents. His parents throw him under the bus. Seriously, go read it. They threw their formerly blind kid under the bus. Remember what he says? It's in the song we sang earlier. He said, whether this man, Jesus, is a sinner or not, I don't know. Here's what I do know. I once was blind. Now I see. That's witnessing. This man didn't have every answer to every question that everybody put to him about God. But he didn't have to. All he needed was an answer from the Lord. Which is what David talks about here. I will have an answer. He didn't say I'll have answers. 
Sometimes we get this misconception that oh, I can't share my faith, I can't talk about Jesus because people are going to ask me things I don't know. And they probably will. Right? I may get into a conversation that I'm not worthy to have. Well, you probably will. Right? You probably are very unworthy. I am too. Join the club. But here's what you will have. If you have received eternal, unchanging, covenant love from God and His salvation, you've got an answer. You've got something to tell. Has He changed your life? You've got something to tell. Someone asks you a question you don't know the answer to, say, I have no idea, but I'll tell you this, I once was blind, but now I see. His steadfast love came to me. His salvation visited my house, my life, by grace alone. I'm telling you, I didn't deserve it. I'm telling you, I didn't earn it. And guess what? You won't either, but it can be for you too. Just like the middle school kid or the high school kid who wants to write the boyfriend, the girlfriend's name all over their notebook. Because she or he is excited about this new relationship. Right? If God has so changed us and given us such love, what excitement ought there to be just to simply tell them not everything in the world, but what we do know. What we do know. In fact, I, I would argue that sharing your faith, if you're just thinking about it in these terms, is almost automatic thing. I'm not saying you're going to be the one to go around and knock on doors and hand out tracts and have long theological discussions. In fact, those are probably very few uh, within the church who are going to do that. You're not going to necessarily preach a sermon. Those are also relatively few within the church. You don't have to. Here's what you got. An answer from God. You too have received his steadfast love. You too have received his salvation. And you've got something to say. In fact, Peter tells us we have an answer for anybody who asks, what is your hope? You got an answer. Does that take some of the tension out of it to you? I don't know. It did for me as I thought about it. Maybe it didn't for you. Maybe you still feel guilty for not sharing your faith. If so, I understand that. I've often felt that way too. All of us have had opportunities pass us by that we were like, man, I can't believe I didn't take that. I can't believe it. I knew that person this long and I didn't tell them about the favorite thing in my life. We all had those situations. But I just want to try to set your mind at ease a little bit. Think about it like everything else in your life that you like. Don't you talk about it with somebody? When appropriate. Again, not everybody's going to be the pushy person. Hey, brother, are you saved? Walking up to him in Walmart. In fact, that might not even be the best thing to do. I don't know. You judge. Not everybody's going to be that, but in an appropriate time, you will have an opportunity. And you, yes, you can take it. And y'all, it might just be with your kids at the dinner table. Well, that's a wonderful time to evangelize and to disciple, to encourage, to tell them. All right. Let's look at number two, which is this wide place that David describes which helps us to see how 
we're supposed to bear witness. And this gets even more encouraging, I think, for everybody. Because this should broaden our definition of what witnessing includes. Uh, Look at verses uh, 43 to 45. David asks, Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. In other words, I want it not just in my heart, but in my mouth. I want to be able to speak about it. Don't take it out of my mouth. What, what, um, What do you think David is wrestling with when he asks God, God, don't take your word utterly out of my mouth. What is it he's worried about? What do y'all think? This is not just rhetorical this time. This is real. I want you to answer. What do you think? Right, yeah, so he's afraid of clamming up. Uh, He's afraid of what happens when we clam up so many times in a row that eventually we stop even feeling the need to do it at all. He's afraid of that. And so he's saying, God, don't take your word out of my mouth. I, I hope in your rules. My whole life is based on your word, so certainly it should be something I talk about. Don't let it be where I don't ever speak about it. Don't get, let the cat get my tongue when it comes to my faith. And then, notice what he says. He talks about a resolve that he has, a resolution. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. What's he saying there? What's he resolving? God, not only do I not want you to take your word out of my mouth, but I want to commit here and now, and I want you to help me and witness to this, I'm going to commit here and now that I'm going to try to walk the talk. I'm going to try to do the same thing that I speak when I share with other people. And I I want that life to be so consistent in me that I'm walking as if through a wide place in my life. And we've already talked about this imagery of a wide place. Remember we said, when, God, when you enlarge my heart, I will run in the direction of your commandments. What did it mean for God to enlarge the heart? Remember that? He gives me space. He gives me freedom. He gives me joy. That's what he's talking about here, except he's not just talking about his heart. He's talking about his whole life. My whole life is going to be lived in a wide place. Now, you know, some folks like to live in crowded places, but I think most people from down here in Mulberry, we like our space a little bit, don't we? We understand what it means to live in a wide place, and we know the appeal of that. What's the appeal of living in a wide place besides no folks around you? Let's be more positive. Room to do stuff. Uh, A yard, a big enough land to have crops and garden and animals and you can have a whole farm it can become productive more than just ornamentals and grass right when you have a wide place in other words what David is saying is when I speak your word and then turn around and also live and keep in step with your spirit and live according to your word what ends up happening is my life becomes manifestly more joyful than everybody else's around me 
Everybody who doesn't have you, God, everybody who doesn't want to follow you, they're living in tiny little spaces. They're confined. They are restricted. They're like, uh, they're they're grumpy about it. But here I am. I'm going to stretch out, and I'm going to become productive and fruitful in the world. Not by my own efforts, but because I'm asking you to help me. So that when people look at my life, they're going to see not only what I'm saying, and they're going to hear what I'm saying, they're going to see a confirmation that what I'm saying is true about Jesus. And here's what I want you to get from this. The writer, uh, the Australian writer John Dixon, writes a book called um, The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission. And he said, here's the best kept secret. The only way to, to promote the gospel is not simply by preaching or speaking about it. But it's also by us together as a whole church living it out. That that actually promotes the gospel too. So that every single Christian, whether you feel like you're gifted as a speaker or not, every single Christian has a role to play in showing the gospel. David says, it's not just that I want to speak about it. It's also that I want my life to be wide and open. Manifesting what God can do with a sinner like this. So that people will see it and be drawn to it will find it um, compelling as they hear the message given. And you know, I think this is the best kept secret. John Dixon lists out six ways that Christians promote the gospel. Number one, with prayer. True, right? I mean, there, there are lots of missionaries who've gone around the world, but there's a whole lot more people behind them praying. Who did a greater work? We could arm wrestle over it. I don't know what the answer is. All I can say is they couldn't have gone without the praying. So maybe the praying might be the greater work. Maybe. Second, with money. Oh, to give of our resources to see the church be able to flourish in its ministry, to see it go all throughout the world to share the gospel. Through simply helping build the local church. The works of the church, whether that's watching the kids, uh, changing the diapers, uh, whether that's you know, sweeping the floor, or whether that's being a part of Bible studies, small groups, worship on Sunday. Just being a part of the church displays the gospel through Christian behavior, which is what uh, David is talking about here. My, our behavior ought to show the compelling nature of Christ through public praise. Did y'all know when we sing songs to Jesus, we're singing to Jesus, but we're also singing to folks? Maybe a better way to say it is we're singing to God so that folks can hear what we believe about God. And oftentimes, the songs of the church have been used to be that final point of the arrow to pierce the heart of many a person, to bring them into a saving relationship with Jesus. So just you coming to sing is a part of witnessing. Wow. In daily conversations, doesn't have to be a sermon, doesn't have to be a Bible study, just as you go through your day, when you have the opportunity, you can speak of what God has done for you. Not answering every question that you can't answer, but giving the answer you do have. John Dixon says, this is the way the church throughout all of history has grown By Christians doing all these things. Yes, you need ministers. Yes, you need missionaries. Yes, yes, yes. But you have to have all Christians realizing their role 
in promoting the gospel in what they think, say, and do. In fact, in his book, he has this ledger where there's one column on one side and one column on the other. The left-hand column are several famous Christians in church history who made a huge difference. Big teachers, big missionaries, St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther and John Calvin and you know George Whitfield and big names. On the other side, it says, the people who influenced them. And that whole column was blank. And he just said, hey, get a pencil out as you're reading the book and list out the people who were instrumental in bringing these people on this side to faith. And so I did it. I fell right into it and took my pencil. I knew a couple of them because I, I knew some about their story. But you know, the vast majority of them, it was a long list. I had no idea. What does that teach us? Who's behind a Billy Graham? Who's behind an Augustine? Who's behind an Aquinas? Usually somebody you have no idea who they are today. The only one I knew or one of the few that I knew on the list was in regards to St. Augustine. You know who was his biggest influence coming to faith? His mother, Monica. And Augustine was a rascal of a teenager and a young adult. An absolute rascal. His mom shared. His mom prayed. She tried to get him baptized, but he protested so much as a baby that she skipped it. And he wouldn't be baptized until much later when he finally was converted. His mom tried. His mom prayed. His, the father was not a Christian. He remained a pagan. So she was alone in that fight. And yet, one, he's known as the teacher of the church. And if you know anything about Christian theology, you know most all of it runs through St. Augustine. Or should we say it runs through Monica? <laughs> and you could see that all the way down the list. I, we don't even know their names. The point is this. You don't know who you may be helping. I don't know. I think about my own story, and it's people that you don't, you don't know, right? It's people that they've never made a headline. They've never been on TV. Those are the people that influence me. Ordinary people. Like us. God loves for his people to just do simply this. Think about in your life, who has God put there? And I find it helpful to write it down, okay? Who, who do I have at work? Who do I have at home? Who do I have in my neighborhood? Write their names down. How, do I know them at all? Do I know what they need? Do I know how to pray for them? Do I know what they're going through? If I don't, I'll try to go see if I can find out. It might not work. I'll go to the next person. And I'll start praying. That's usually the way I'll, I'll try to do it. And, and as I pray, I, I, almost without fail, an opportunity will come. Almost without fail. Be careful when you pray for people. Because God will listen. And he'll give you a chance. Now, you know, that there's where, okay, we've got to take the chance. But pray, ask the Lord like David does. Don't take your word utterly out of my mouth. Don't let me be tongue-tied. 
And let my life speak before my words. Along with my words. Let us as a church all together do teamwork evangelism. Where all of us have a role in everybody who comes here and who hears the gospel. Becomes a Christian. Amen? All right. Now lastly, there is a growing delight that we see in David which helps us understand why. In particular, we're able to bear bold witness to Jesus. Uh, look at verses 46 through 48. Uh, he says something at the very beginning which underlines his boldness. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. All right, let me give you a quiz. Who's writing this? David. I think David. There's dispute, but I've said all along I think it's David. So you, that's a good answer, in my opinion. David. What was David eventually? A king. Uh, there was a long period of time where he wasn't a king. Who might he have been talking about? I will bear testimony before kings. Saul, perhaps? The kings of the Philistines that he fought with or, or the kings of the Philistines that he took refuge with as he was hiding from Saul? If this is written after he was king, he's thinking about maybe the king of Tyre, the king of Syria, the, all these other rival kings around him, the king of Egypt, all these people with whom David had a relationship, a working relationship. They all had their own gods going on. They all had their own agendas. And yet David said, I will speak of your word before them. And I won't be ashamed about it. This reminds me of Romans chapter 1, where Paul says to the people of Rome, I want this more than anything. I want to go to Rome so that in Rome I can declare the gospel. What was Rome? The center of the world, the, at that time, the capital, the center of the empire. And Paul says, I can't, I, I want to get there because I've got to preach the gospel in Rome. It's on my bucket list to speak of Christ before the king of the world. In fact, he goes on to say a couple of verses later, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed. I'll go to Rome. I'll preach to Caesar. I ain't ashamed. Why am I not ashamed? Because in the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the steadfast love of God bringing salvation to us. It's the message about Jesus. And Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And there is no nation that can keep the King of kings out. Y'all know that? There's no border that can be closed to King Jesus. And the apostles went right over the borders, even when they weren't allowed to sometimes, and said, Here, King Jesus. They told kings, you better bow to Jesus. Right? If you don't now, you will later. So bow now. Bow with a willing heart. Bow to receive salvation. Wow. David is almost anticipating the ministry of the apostles in this verse. 
I will bear testimonies before kings, and I will not be put to shame. Now, why is he so bold? If you'll look at verse 47, you'll see this great little word, this word for. For answers the why question. Why he doesn't feel ashamed. Why is it? My delight is in your commandments, which I love. And then he says it again. I will lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. I'm in love and I don't care who knows it. I love your word, God. In your word, I find light. In your word, I find life. In your word is untied all the knots that the human mind has tied and can untie. In your word are all the answers that have befuddled philosophers. That have undone kings and kingdoms. God, you make it plain. And you make it clear. I love your word. And therefore, I'm not ashamed. Because your word is second to none. King Jesus is king of all the kings. And so I can stand before them boldly. And pronounce what God has said. Like the prophets of old. Elijah, Elisha, thus says the Lord, O king, bow before him. A delight in God's word fuels boldness in witness. He tells us in verse 48 the way that his delight has been cultivated. He gives us two essential activities that he has resolved to do. I will, I will, verse 48. What does he say? I will what? I'll lift up my hands. And then I will meditate. Now let me ask you that. What does lifting up the hands mean symbolically? What do you think? Lifting up hands. Any ideas? Asking. Yeah, it's like a child saying, Mommy, you know, Dad, Mommy, Help. So often in the Jewish world, they would use lifting up a hands as a symbol of prayer. And often, actually, they literally, when they prayed, they lifted their hands to pray. Often. You see it in the Psalms. You see it in the, even in the New Testament. I'm going to pray towards your commandments. I'm going to sit down in front of your Bible with a, with a Bible open, and I'm going to beg you. I'm going to plead with you, God, to help me. That my heart might come into sync with your words, with your heart, so that I can have the kind of boldness that I need to bear testimony in front of everybody, no matter who they are, without fear or favor. I'm going to lift up my hands. And then he says, secondly, I will what? Meditate. There's that word again. There's that word again. Meditation. I will pray and I will meditate on your statutes. Let me give you one more idea about meditation. I've kind of been slowly through the series unfolding for you what meditation means. Here's one aspect of what meditation is. It's taking God's word and thinking about it to such a degree that it changes your affections for it. Did y'all hear that? Meditation is thinking about the word in such a way, to such a degree... That you don't really get up from thinking about it until it has moved you emotionally. It's meditation. It's important. 
Um, just skirting over the Bible. Is, I mean, it's good to read the Bible, but just skirting over it all the time doesn't always move us. I was talking to some folks this week, and, and we were all saying, you know, how hard it is to, when we read the Psalms, for example, to get into the emotion of it. You read what David felt, and you're like, oh, great, you know, okay, he felt sad, he felt angry, he felt, okay, good, I'm glad David felt that way. But to actually feel what David felt takes a little bit of time, doesn't it, to kind of get your imagination engaged, to get all the aspects of your mind involved. Sometimes you got to take your heart in hand and say, heart, you're supposed to be excited right now. Why aren't you excited? Why aren't you encouraged? Look, look at what God says to you. That's what David does in Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in the Lord. Soul, get off the couch. Get excited. The living God loves you. Right? That's what meditation is. Uh, you, you're taking a passage of Scripture, some truth about God in Scripture, and you're working it through your mind till it hits your heart. And your heart begins to warm, and you begin to feel those things that God wants you to feel about that thing about Him. And then you get up from there, refreshed, ready, bold, to do what God is asking you to do. If we just read the Bible and it never moves us at any kind of emotional, affectional level, uh, well, we're probably not going to do too much about it, right? It's just going to be information. And we're probably going to forget that too. Because usually we only keep the information we really love anyway, right? We, how many things have you learned in your life that you don't remember? I didn't realize that until my kids hit about fifth grade in math. They started bringing me their homework and I realized, wow. I don't remember this. I feel kind of, well, kind of slow. I can't even do fifth grade math, sixth grade math. Now, granted, I've never been good at math, but it's still a little embarrassing. And I had to go back and relearn some of the things. We only remember things typically that we love anyway. And so as you're reading the Bible, don't just read it for information. Read it so that that information might move you towards the Lord. Ask, ask God. If you want to talk about lifting up your hands, say, God, help me to feel what you want me to feel. Help me to feel what is appropriate for a child of God to feel hearing these words from God. Let it move me. Now, I know that might be uncomfortable for you to hear a Presbyterian minister talk about feelings. But we got them, too. We all do. And you do, too. Every human being has feelings. What we need is just to have those feelings also claimed by God, just the way we have our minds and our wills and every part of us claimed by God. All of it belongs to Jesus. Give it to him. And let him take it and use it. Amen? David says... Even before kings, I won't be ashamed because I absolutely delight in your commandments. I will speak about what I love. And so I lift up my hands and I meditate to get my heart moved so that I'm going around everywhere speaking as often as I have opportunity of the God who has loved me.